Hey there, welcome to Fleet FYIs, the weekly podcast by Utilimark that reveals how you can make the most of your data for Sperner fleet management. My name is Gretchen, and every week you'll hear from me and some of the industry's finest in candid conversations that will shed some light on not only two decades worth of data insights, but some of the industry's hottest talking points and key metric analysis with the aim to help you better understand your fleet from every angle. But before we begin, if this is the first time you've heard our show, thanks for stopping by. I'm so glad you decided to come along for the ride with us. But I've got a quick favor to ask you. Once you've finished today's episode, if you could take a few minutes to leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform, we would really appreciate it. Give us a rating, five stars I hope, or tell us what you liked or leave us a comment or a question about what you've heard in today's episode. But if we haven't yet covered a topic that you're interested in hearing more about, let us know. We would be happy to go over it in detail in a later episode. If that sounds good to you, let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fleet FYI's podcast. I apologize that I'm back a little later than normal. We had some server errors on our end, unfortunately, and sadly, that meant that I wasn't able to upload an episode for you on Monday. But not to worry, we are back and ready to rock and roll. If you remember, not too long ago, I recorded an episode about low emission zones, specifically those in London, over in the UK, Norway, and even the few that are starting to pop up here in the States. These so-named green zones operate in Santa Monica ahead of the, I believe, 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles, and right now I think it only affects last mile delivery, ensuring that these vehicles that operate within each of these green zones are completely tailpipe emissions free. Now, I'm pretty sure this is just last mile delivery. I could be wrong. It might have been updated since the last time we were talking about this, but I know for a fact last mile delivery is in there. Now, this episode is just a few episodes back in our directory, no matter the platform that you're listening on. So give it a listen when you get the chance, because it's a good one, I promise. But the reason that I'm bringing this up is that recently, as you may or may not have noticed, depending on how much you follow international transportation, the London Ultra Low Emission Zone has actually increased in size. Let's dig in. So for those of you that haven't yet listened to that first show that we did on London's low emission zones, or rather low emission zones in general, I want to start with a bit of a refresher, just so you're not completely lost on what I'm talking about here and what I'm trying to get at in this episode. So to start off with, cities around the world are taking huge steps to meet government set goals of carbon neutrality within the next few decades. This we know with most strategies detailing plans for electric vehicle adoption and renewable energy generation, many cities and many countries are opting to include low emission zones to protect the air quality in larger metropolitan cities. Now, low emission zones, which are otherwise referred to as LEZs, are common throughout Europe and the UK. London is one of the world's best known, with over 250 protected European cities as of 2019, which is a pretty high number. So like I said, cities like London especially, but also Barcelona and Milan have some of the largest low emission zones in the world, and they're actually showing really promising results for reduced air pollution and NO2 concentration. Now, 
Though it's not as common in the United States yet, these European cities provide a pretty strong blueprint for the future of low-emission zones all around the world. To get further into what a low-emission zone is exactly, they're designated areas, which typically they're commonly city centers, where polluting vehicles, so like your internal combustion engines, are either restricted or they're entirely prohibited. So that's one thing to really hold on to from what these low-emission zones do. These areas are typically only allowing access to vehicles that meet certain emission standards, for example, electric vehicles, hybrids, or alternative fuel vehicles. But the thing is, is that vehicles that don't meet these requirements, they're not banned completely. What happens instead is that they will be fined or penalized for entering the low emission zone unless previously exempt by paying a daily fee, which is what some people choose to do on a monthly or annual basis. These zones are implemented with the purpose of, like I said, improving air quality for citizens or people that are visiting the city, and they tend to be pretty effective. Actually, in Greater London alone, the NO2 concentration dropped about 44% since the launch of the Ultra Low Emission Zone Initiative in 2017, which is a huge number. And in order to put a successful low emission zone into place, there's a few factors that urban planners really need to consider. First of all, and probably the most important part of this, is availability of public transportation. Now, we've all heard about this before, especially if you know a thing or two about London, is the big red buses that drive around everywhere, the tube, the overground, the DLR, black cabs. There are so many ways to get around the city via means of public transport. In fact, the city's famous for it, practically. But what we're pulling out of this is that without easily accessible public transportation, low emission zones are detrimental to potentially low-income workers who can't afford to replace their internal combustion engine vehicles or people that live so far out of the city that they have no choice but to drive in. Policymakers need to facilitate this transition for low-income families and small businesses by either providing financial support or potentially incentives for purchasing clean vehicles, similar to some of the EV tax credits that you're seeing come into place in the U.S. Secondly, another point to touch on here, certain exemptions might need to be made for medium and heavy-duty fleets who currently have less or no options for vehicle alternatives. That's another big one, you know, fleets that are operating in these low-emission zones. And also, municipality fleets also need to consider their own timeline for adopting electric, hybrid, alternative fuel, whatever it is, as part of their government fleet, because they could be hit by all of these fines in future as well. But for local fleets and for local customers, or I guess you could call them consumers, low emission zones mean looking towards the future, so replacing vehicles and creating other solutions, especially with so many being implemented as a transitory phase to less forgiving zero emission zones. That's going to be the ultra extreme side of this. And the policies that are currently in place or will be put in place in future are actually forcing city fleets and citizens to adopt um, zero emissions or lesser emissions transportation solutions sooner rather than later. But now that we've gone through a little refresher on low emission zones themselves, I wanted to talk about some of the benefits that introducing them has shown, because I know that this can seem like a bit of a controversial initiative, especially when you bring into the conversation zero emission zones and super strict policies and regulations. 
So along with meeting zero emissions goals encouraged by the Paris Climate Agreement, low emission zones offer many benefits for cities and their residents, even though sometimes the fees can get a little astronomical in the process. It's unsurprising that these zones are almost always implemented in busy cities, as opposed to in the countryside because of population density and congestion of vehicles in such a small area. Odds of you seeing a low emission zone in the countryside or just in a more rural area are pretty slim to none at this point, if I had to guess, or even looking forward to to, to the next 10 years even. But to start with the benefits that you can see, the first and probably most obvious one is better air quality. So with transportation being the biggest contributor to air pollution, is something that we probably all know at this point, a reduction or total elimination of polluting vehicles in cities would reduce the amount of toxic pollutants like carbon monoxide and sulfur oxides in the air. For example, the city of Madrid saw a record reduction of NO2 concentration by 32% while their low emission zone policy was in place. But along that same note, let's talk about public health. So we all know that pollution in the air can potentially cause detrimental effects on our health. But the thing is, is that air pollution's effect on health and lifespan is a huge concern. The City of London quotes that about 4,000 Londoners died in 2019 alone due to long-term exposure to the toxic elements in air pollution, which causes and increases the risk of cancer, asthma, stroke, and dementia. Not good. (laughs) Not good at all. But this is concerning for residents of all ages, as exposure over a lifetime in that city can have very detrimental health effects, like we were just talking about. The third benefit on my list is speeding up electrification. So whilst it might be considered a pain for fleet managers to overhaul their current strategies and go completely electric or even start to integrate more sustainable technology, they'll likely know that they're ripping off a Band-Aid in the long run, which sounds a little goofy when you phrase it like that. But most cities, or actually many cities, I should say, not most, but many cities are calling for a total ban on internal combustion engines by a certain year. For example, London is doing that by 2030, and many fleet managers are better off phasing out internal combustion engines as soon as possible, if they can and if there is a viable replacement. I really want to stress that here because the thing is, is if there's no viable replacement and if electrification doesn't suit the vehicles in your region and doesn't suit the type of work you do, it's not going to be a successful initiative. So when it comes to sustainable technology, take everything that I say with a grain of salt, because what is considered sustainable for one fleet might not work for you and vice versa. It's all about making the most of what you have and being able to be as sustainable as possible in a way that works for you. Right. So moving on to the last benefit on my list for today is limiting city congestion. So restrictions on vehicle movement within busy cities will also be useful in cutting down on heavy traffic, which, you know, who loves to sit in traffic? Definitely not me. In addition to reducing the amount of toxic pollutants in the air, a less congested city would certainly improve quality of life for residents, making streets optimal for biking or walking instead. Green zones in major cities are effective and show super promising results almost immediately. And as electric-powered trucks and heavy-duty vehicles slowly begin to roll out, you know, emphasis on slowly here, come on manufacturers, let's get going here, Uh, the biggest barrier now is the lack of available alternatives. 
So cities looking for an immediate solution can still enforce green zones for passenger vehicles, light duty trucks, city buses, maybe even last mile delivery. But from a global standpoint, the reduction of greenhouse gases in areas that are so currently concentrated with these toxic pollutants would be a significant win for public health and for a global reduction of greenhouse gases. So there you have it. So then the question that you have all been waiting oh so patiently for the answer to, what does the expansion of London's ultra-low emission zone mean for fleets? Because after all, that is the title of this episode. I always like to save the best till last. I mean, you guys know that by now. If you listen to the show plenty of times, I always save the best for last. But I'm glad you asked. So the idea behind London's ultra-low emission zone, like previously mentioned, is to help clean up the air in the city itself. It operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week every day of the year, apart from Christmas Day. So there's no bah humbugs or scrooges to be had there. Most vehicles need to meet the ultra-low emission zone emissions standards. Man, that is a bit of a tongue twister if you say that uh, even two times fast. Or you need to pay a £12.50 daily charge to drive inside the zone, which is roughly about $16 to $18, depending on what the conversion rates are year over year. What this includes is cars, motorcycles, vans, Specialist vehicles up to and including three and a half tons, minibuses up to and including five tons, residents of the congestion charge area, and this is because the 100% discount of the daily ultra low emission zone charge has been ended. And then also lorries, or what myself and the rest of my North American friends would call semi trucks, vans, and specialist heavy vehicles over three and a half tons, and then buses, minibuses, and coaches over five tons do not need to currently pay the ultra-low emission zone charge. Instead, however, they will need to pay the low emission zone charge, two very different zones, so hopefully you'll be able to keep up. If not, I'll put in a map of the low emission zone and the ultra-low emission zone into the show notes of this episode just to make it a little bit clearer, and then you'll get a little bit of a visual too, so you can see what I'm what I'm chatting about here. But So, like I said, instead they'll need to pay the low emission zone if they don't mean the low emission zone emission standard. But this is where things get a little interesting. So in order to comply with the minimum standards of London's low emission zone, many suggest that fleets will begin to see a large increase in turnover and also a shorter vehicle life cycle. Why? Well, this is due to the fact that the standards for heavier duty vehicles are tighter than the standards for smaller vehicles or passenger cars, and fleet vehicles need to maintain meeting the minimum standard in order to operate in the city or in this ultra-low emission zone, or low emission zone actually, at the lowest cost possible. Now, with the expansion of the ultra-low emission zone, according to a UK-based company called Masternot, fleets face about a 54 million pound bill, which is roughly around $71,300,000 for my American friends listening today in additional charges for entering the expanded ultra-low emission zone in London over the next year. I can't even visualize that amount of money right now. Granted, it is after um, a time when I definitely need some more coffee, so that could probably help. But I digress. The newly expanded ultra-low emission zone, which now operates from just further than Tottenham in the north of London to Woolwich in the east, West Dulwich in the south, and nearly reaching Ealing and Richmond in the west, sure covers a lot of ground. I mean, it's huge. 
It's 18 times larger than the original central London ultra-low emission zone, which had occupied the same area as the congestion charge zone. But the idea behind it is to get people to walk or use public transport or invest in cleaner technology. I'd say fleets included, but really they're only included in the last bit of my last point. You couldn't exactly get them uh, to walk from job site to job site, but I digress. I don't know. Like I said, caffeine would be helpful right about now. But my question for you is, is do you think that ultra-low emission zones are a good idea? Is this something you could see taking hold in the U.S.? My thought is that it's an interesting tactic to encourage the use of sustainable technology. However, with the high cost that it takes to operate inside of these boundaries, the toll it could take on society and lower-income residents, it may actually take longer for fleets or even regular everyday consumers to be able to completely comply with sustainability mandates because of the higher costs involved. But that's just my two cents. What do you think? Let me know by sending me an email, tag me on LinkedIn, or use the hashtag UtilamarkFleetFYIs. You all know where to find me by now, at least. I hope you do. (laughs) But that's all for me this week. I hope you have a lovely weekend, and I will be back to chat to you again on Monday. Ciao. Hey there. I think this is the time that I should cue the virtual high five, because you've just finished listening to another episode of the Fleet FYI's podcast. If you're already wanting more content, head over to utilimark.com, which is utilimark with a C, U-T-I-L-I-M-A-R-C.com for the show notes and extra insights coming straight from our analysts to you. That's all from me this week. So until next time, I'll catch you later.